Matthew chapter 12 is our text. If you'd open your Bible or navigate on your device to Matthew chapter 12, we're gonna look at verses 22 through 37. The topic there, Jesus' exorcisms proved he had the power and the authority to bind Satan and hold him captive. The title of our message, Tying Up Loose Fiends. Father, thank you so much for this time that we've spent worshiping you, opening up our hearts, Lord, to let you know just how much we love you in response to your great love for us in sending Jesus to die for us, to rise from the dead, to save us, Lord, for eternity. Now we wanna pay attention to your word because we believe that it's alive, that it's powerful, that it can change lives. Lord, as it Uh, changes us that we can bring change into the places that you have planted us and scattered us in the world so that others may know this great truth that we have, this treasure that we have in earthen vessels that Jesus Christ is indeed God, Savior of the world. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Notorious serial killer Ted Bundy escaped from custody twice in 1977, the second time with pretty horrifying consequences, he killed three more women before he was reapprehended. His first escape was facilitated by the judge ordering the jailers to remove Bundy's shackles because he was acting as his own attorney in the courtroom. If only he could have remained bound, at least some of the evil he perpetrated would never have happened. What if I told you that the world's most heinous murderer and notorious perpetrator of evil was once bound, but that he was allowed to, in a sense, escape and continue his reign of terror? Jesus said, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? The strong man Jesus was referencing was Satan. We'll see in a moment that this statement was to show the leaders of Israel that Jesus had both the power and the authority to bind Satan, to overthrow him and his kingdom of darkness and establish his own kingdom on the earth. Sadly, the leaders of Israel would reject both their king and his kingdom. In so doing, as collateral damage, Satan remained unbound and free to roam around the earth, murdering and robbing and destroying. Now, Jesus is coming back a second time, and in his second coming, one of the very first things he does is he has an angel come and bind the devil. Verse uh, one of Revelation 20, it says this, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, cast him into a bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him. In between the first and second comings of Jesus, we're warned, this is from 1 Peter 5, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. As Jesus and the leaders of Israel reach a watershed moment in which the Lord says there can be no neutrality, you're either with him or against him, we can find comfort in knowing that the currently unbound devil will one day be bound. In the meantime, and they do seem to be extremely mean times, we want to be conquerors and not casualties. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you are a conqueror if you're with Jesus. Number two, you'll be a casualty if you're against Jesus. 
First of all, let's look at being conquerors in verses 22 through 30. You know, when something particularly awful occurs, it's common for someone to say that the people involved look like they've been through a war or the landscape looked like a war zone. Our entire planet and even the atmosphere around it, we would say, is a war zone. It is a spiritual war zone because Satan is currently unbound. The devil is called the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4. He's called the prince of this world, John chapter 12. He's called the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians chapter 2. He's not alone. He rules over fallen angels we call demons who seem to be organized in a military hierarchy for battle. Ephesians 6 describes them as principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. And they're out to rob and to kill and to destroy. Jesus was and he remains our only hope, our only help against these fierce foes. But with him, the Bible says, we are more than conquerors. Keep all that in mind as we study this turning point, not just in the history of Israel, but really in the history of the world. Verse 22 is where we're putting in. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. Not all disease or illness is the direct result of the devil or of demonic possession, but some conditions can be caused by demons, and that was the case for this poor man. He was made blind and mute because of demonic possession. And in passing, note the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in healing him. Here was someone who could not see to find Jesus nor speak to ask for mercy from Jesus, yet by grace, the Lord met him in his need, having compassion on him and setting him free. Verse 23, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Uh, which is a name for their Messiah. Now, the word for amazed, it's a fun word. It could be translated, the crowds were going wild. You could hear like an announcer saying, and then they went wild, and that's what was happening. They just, they, they were coming to the conclusion that maybe this was their savior, the son of David, the one who was promised to Israel in their scriptures. And it was this wild interest in Jesus that prompted the Pharisees to issue an official response. Verse 24, now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now there are at least two fascinating insights here. First, we would note that they did not refute the fact that a genuine exorcism had occurred, that this man had been demon-possessed and that he had been exorcised of this demon. Their worldview included angels and demons. They knew God was at war with supernatural enemies and that the conflict was being waged on the earth and that it affected the human race. And secondly, we would notice that the Jews understood that the demons were under the leadership and the authority of one particularly heinous individual. Now, we sometimes, I think, miss the obvious because we have a wrong or at least incomplete worldview. When we are looking at the world, and I mean we, I guess you'd say the Western world or what we would consider the rational scientific world, when we look at the world and the events in it, we rarely take into account the supernatural. It's one of the last things that we think of, uh, and, and even as Christians, sometimes conservative Christians, it's one of the last things that we think about. 
we must begin to take into account the entire world God created, including angels and fallen angels who are at war with God. For example, let me give you an example. I've used this before. People are stressed out over UFOs and alien abductions. They, 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 just, they can't seem to explain uh, the proliferation of all of these things, and they have now all of these strange theories they believe uh, that you know alien astronauts are coming from uh, you know millions of years ago who started the Earth and now they're coming back to you know see how we're doing and that kind of a thing. And uh, and probably the easiest exam- explanation, of course, is the one we've used before. When you see these unexplained UFOs and these alien abductions, it's just demons messing with you because they're trying to introduce a supernatural element into uh, thinking so that perhaps when the rapture of the church takes place, you ever thought about what might happen in the aftermath of the rapture? You know how fantastic it's gonna be when millions of people are gone? And then maybe demons can step into the void and say, well, we got rid of all the people that you know were really causing all the problems. Or maybe they'll say they, got, they took away all of the super intelligent people like us. And, and you know, you people need our help. But whatever, it's preparing the world for a great demonic deception that's coming. And so that's the easiest explanation is that it's demonic. On the other hand, we can get too interested in demons and start blaming everything on the devil. There are branches of Christianity where everything is, is the devil. Uh, and, and no matter what happens, and we wanna be careful there. So we have to strike a balance. We have to have a proper worldview. And so when we're looking at the world, we have to take into account all of the things that God has revealed to us about his world and one very important thing that he's revealed to us about the world is that right now Satan is the God of this world. God remains in charge but the devil is on the loose and so we do need to take that into account and oftentimes we either do not or we give him more credit than he's due. Now, the Pharisees accused Jesus of being in cahoots with Beelzebub. I'll tell you the truth, if I was the devil, I'd want a better name than that. Uh, does that strike fear into you? We were joking in between services, you could call him Beelzebub Bob or something, you know? It, it just doesn't strike fear into you. Now, a lot of people think they know where the name Beelzebub came from, but they really don't. It's just, you find it in different places in literature. It seems to be the name of a Canaanite deity, and over time it came to Jews to stand for the leader of the demonic realm. Uh, In verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? Now Jesus here, first of all, identifies the leader of the demons as none other than Satan. He says, when you guys are talking about Beelzebub, realize you're talking about Satan, the devil, Uh, Lucifer, the fallen angel, who is our adversary. Now, this was a nice way of saying that their reasoning was stupid. Truth is, you might be willing to sacrifice some of your own forces on a limited basis if you were trying to fool your enemies and gain you an advantage, right? I mean, that could be a military strategy if you're trying to do subterfuge. But what the Pharisees were missing here and what we don't want to miss is that Jesus wasn't just going around casting out a few demons here and there. He had declared war on Satan and on his kingdom. He was destroying Satan's strongholds left and right. Jesus was casting out demons, legions at a time. 
You remember a previous episode in the Gospel of Matthew when he landed on the shore and a demon-possessed man approached him who was filled with a legion of demons. And Jesus cast them out into a herd of swine and the swine went running off the cliff and killed themselves uh, in the ocean, or in the lake, rather. This wasn't just a, a, an, an exorcism every now and then, which could be maybe a subtle subterfuge to try and show that you're not really of the devil. No, Jesus had declared war on Satan and he was crushing him. He was crushing his head. He had the devil cornered. The devil could hear the rattling of the chains that would bind him. Now Jesus had a second argument for these guys in verse 27. He says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. Now their sons were the followers of the Pharisees, their disciples. They also went about trying to exorcise demons. It was part of their worldview. There's no indication whether they were successful or not. We read about some guys in the book of Acts who were exorcists who got beat up pretty bad by the demon that they were trying to cast out. So though they were exorcists, it doesn't mean they were successful. The argument Jesus is using is saying, you're not accusing your disciples of having the power of Satan to cast out demons, so why would I have that power? And their sons would think that this conclusion, a terrible accusation and a false offensive argument. Jesus next made a powerful declaration in verse 28. He says, if, and the word should be since, since I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. It was proof that he was the king and that he could establish the kingdom. I mean, he was just saying, look, I'm doing this by the Spirit of God, and since I'm doing that, it is another proof, maybe a final proof in a list of proofs that I am the Messiah and that the kingdom is at hand. And so this was it. The moment Jewish history had been moving towards for centuries was upon them. And then in verse 29, Jesus says, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. Jesus pictured the world as Satan's house and Satan as the strong man guarding his house. The exorcisms Jesus had been performing on such a massive scale showed that he was capable of binding the strong man and taking back everything he had stolen. What Adam forfeited to Satan in Edom when he sinned was about to be reclaimed by the second Adam Jesus was going to destroy the works of the devil, overthrow his kingdom of darkness, and set up his own reign of righteousness. Verse 30, he who's not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. There's some disagreement on exactly what Jesus was referring to uh, with gathering and scattering, whether he was using the illustration of sheep uh, and the shepherd or of a harvest or both. It doesn't really matter because you get the point. It was go time. This was it. Decide. Receive king and kingdom as conqueror or reject king and kingdom and you will suffer enormous casualties. Tragically, the Jews would choose door number two. And the devil got away, so to speak. He avoided being bound. Instead, he roams and his forces uh, Rome. He will be bound, make no mistake, but today he is free to wreak havoc on the earth. God remains in charge of the universe, but instead of the literal physical kingdom of God on the earth, our planet is a war zone. 
The outcome of the conflict was settled once for all on the cross when Jesus defeated Satan. But the battles rage on until the devil is bound at the second coming. I won't go into it in detail again because I've previously done it in our studies in Matthew, but a good illustration of the spiritual battles raging on despite Jesus Christ's decisive victory would be the D-Day invasion of World War II. Historians will tell you that it essentially ended the war. Once we took Normandy and began moving forward, the war was effectively over. However, armistice wasn't declared for a year, and there were a lot of battles, a lot of fighting, many, many casualties during that period of time. The age in which we live is like that. Jesus came offering the kingdom. He said, I am binding the devil. And then his kingdom was rejected. And he's in heaven awaiting his second coming when he will do what? Have the devil bound. And in the meantime, the devil is a roaring lion roaming about the earth seeking whom he may devour. Our confidence and hope is in knowing two things. One is that someday the victory over Satan and the cessation of all evil that flows from him shall be realized. And the other is that whatever evil might befall us, we are already, the Bible says, more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loves us. And he will redeem for good all things that we must endure while we wait for his coming. Now, in verses 31 through 37, you'll be a casualty if you're against Jesus. Jesus lets them know just how serious their choice to receive or reject him would be, and we need to pay close attention to it because the choices are no less serious for us. Verse 31 says, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. I don't know any Christian who isn't terrified the first time they hear about a supposedly unpardonable sin. I know I was. Uh, I think it was made more terrifying to me because I came out of a tradition, a, the Roman Catholic tradition, where I was used to uh, sins on a sliding scale, if you were. Uh, back when I was growing up uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, they had mortal sins and venial sins. They've done away with that distinction now. Venial sins were run-of-the-mill sins, just, you know, everyday sins. Mortal sins my understanding from catechism was that if you committed a mortal sin, you could not go to heaven. Purgatory was out of the question as well. You were just lost. Now they dropped the distinction, I don't know the official reason, but the unofficial reason was too many Catholics were committing mortal sins. <laughs> they were losing people left and right, and so they just, you know, I think, <laughs> I think adultery was a mortal sin for a while, and that's not working too well for anybody anymore. So, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. But coming out of that kind of a religious tradition and then hearing that there's an unpardonable sin, you can't help but think, I wonder if I'm committing this or if I could commit this or whatever. Now, rest assured, if you're worried you might commit an unpardonable sin, it's evidence that you can't commit it. 
Here's what I mean. God the Holy Spirit is with everyone in the world and his job description is to convict them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. That's what the Holy Spirit is about with every non-believer in the world. He wants to convict you of sin, meaning I'm a sinner separated from God, of righteousness, meaning I have no righteousness of my own. I need righteousness from Jesus Christ to be given to me and of judgment to come. If I don't admit I'm a sinner and have Christ's righteousness, then there is a judgment coming after I die when I stand before the Lord alone without help, without representation, and I am lost for eternity. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. And he's about that business all through the life of every individual on planet Earth until they die. He points them to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and to receive eternal life. You blaspheme the Holy Spirit when you reject the truth he is revealing to you through the gospel about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to save you. If you've received the Lord, you've believed, not blasphemed, the Holy Spirit, and so therefore you cannot commit this sin. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't one specific sin. It isn't saying something bad about the Holy Spirit. You blaspheme him by fully and finally rejecting Jesus Christ by refusing his forgiveness of your sins and dying without salvation. God does not forgive sin one at a time. At the cross, you receive the forgiveness of all your sins, past, present, and future. Therefore, every sinner is a candidate for conversion until death ends his or her opportunity to receive the forgiveness of the cross. If you want just a quick assurance that you're not capable of committing the uh, uh, unpardonable sin if you're a Christian, Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. In other words, if you've been born again, then you cannot commit the unpardonable sin and be condemned because you're no longer under condemnation. Because why? Jesus took your condemnation on the cross and you're saved. Now the point Jesus was making was that the Holy Spirit was revealing to Israel that her king was on the earth to establish their kingdom, but they must receive him in order to realize the establishment of their kingdom. And so verse 33 says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Please note the either or quality of what Jesus was saying. There's no room for neutrality, there's no sitting on the fence. He was comparing Israel to a fruit tree. They would either receive him and thereby produce good fruit as he established the kingdom, or bad fruit as they rejected it and let Satan go free. Verse 34, brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A brood of vipers, of course, are the offspring of a viper. Jesus was letting them know pretty directly that they were of the devil, that they, their essential character and nature showed that they were not saved that they were in their sin, that they were of the devil. Their accusations against him, their blaspheming the Holy Spirit, proved that they were evil like Satan. 
Their words revealed this essential nature. Verse 35, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. This is another way of saying the same thing, only he's using the analogy of treasure rather than words. In this case, the Pharisees, by their actions, were revealing that they were evil. They had nothing in their heart but evil, is is what Jesus was saying, and you could see it in their words and in their actions, accusing the Holy Spirit of being, uh, uh, or Jesus of doing the work of the devil, and of course, we know that they actually wanted to kill him. Verse 36, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, before we get too overwhelmed by this, realize that Jesus was talking to, and that these verses apply to non-believers. A believer is under no threat of condemnation by virtue of Jesus having taken everything upon himself at the cross. Our words are important for sure. That's why in the Bible we're told to season our speech with grace and to speak as if we were the oracles of God. Those of you who do any cooking, you know how important seasoning is. And over-seasoning is, you ever have something with just too much salt? Just no good. But in the Bible it says you just keep pouring on the grace. You know, just here it comes. Just keep seasoning your speech with grace so that people see the Lord in your speech. In fact, Imagine that you're speaking for God when you talk to others, trying to minister to them the grace of God. So our words are super important, that's, that's true. But they will either earn us rewards at the reward seat of Jesus or they will be burned away. But there's no sense that we're going to be condemned in any way for the words that we speak. So I'm not trying to take away the importance of our words as believers, I think we should take them more seriously, Uh, but there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You know, when God says something and it's pretty cool, we should just take it. And so when, when the Lord says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, I'm there, right? I don't wanna be condemned and I'm not gonna be condemned because Jesus did all that on the cross for me. Now a non-believer has no such protection. If you're not saved before you die, after death you face judgment. Your words will judge you, and I think especially those that are spoken either in your heart or aloud, whereby you rejected the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ. Have you seen those commercials for State Farm Insurance? Those who are insured by State Farm Something bad happens, but all they need to do is sing, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, and their agent appears. He's got a clipboard in his hand, and money's paying, throwing him money, and I mean, and everything is fine because your State Farm agent is there representing you. And then there's always their, fa- their friend who has a disaster, and they, they have no representation. Their agent shows up, and he's probably from Mercury or one of those companies, you know, and, and he can't help them at all. And, and, and it's a pretty effective commercial. You think, wow, I wanna, I wanna have State Farm Insurance. Actually, what you want is AAA, but anyway, <laughs> it's an unsolicited, I wonder if they can pay me for that, but anyway, um, You get the idea. After you die, you need representation. Now, actually, you need it before you die, too, but especially after you die, you wanna make sure you have representation. 
You need the Father to see you in Jesus Christ, declared righteous by grace through faith in him. Otherwise, you'll, on, you'll be on your own to face the disaster of sin. These Pharisees, these leaders of Israel were not just rejecting their king and the kingdom as terrible as that was. They weren't just letting Satan go unbound as heinous and negligent as that was. They were rejecting personal salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They were choosing to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and spend eternity in hell, a place that was created for the devil and his angels. Non-believers condemn themselves and God confirms what they have chosen. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're condemning yourself and God is just confirming what you choose throughout your life. Take the Pharisees, for example. By the time of this confrontation, they had rejected the witness of John the Baptist. John came on the scene Everyone knew he was sent from God, by God, filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, a powerful preacher of, the, of repentance. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders rejected his message. Then they rejected the, the voice of the Father from heaven. When John baptized Jesus and he came up out of the water and the heavens opened, And God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. They rejected that testimony. They said, yeah, he's not the guy. Then they rejected their own scriptures. As many times in the gospels, Jesus would point to the scriptures and say, I'm fulfilling this. This is what you read. And these are guys that knew the word of God. They had it memorized and they understood, maybe not the meaning of it, but they understood these words. And Jesus said, you've rejected your own scriptures. And here they were now finally rejecting Jesus's own testimony and the testimony of God the Holy Spirit. You might say there was nothing more God could do to reach these guys. I mean, this is a valiant effort on the part of heaven to get through these hard hearts and to have these men say, you are our savior, we will receive you. And they absolutely refuse because of their religious hypocrisy and the hardness of their hearts. And ultimately, they were and did blaspheme God the Holy Spirit. I wanna talk to you this morning if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. If, If I were to ask you, are you saved? Are you born again? Do you know without a doubt that if you die, you're gonna go to heaven? Those kinds of things. And if your answer is, I don't know, or maybe, then number one, you're rejecting the witness of creation. The Bible says that, you know, creation declares the glory of God. You at least know that there's a creator and he's revealed himself in scripture. Secondly, you're rejecting the witness of your own conscience, which tells you that there is a right and wrong, which by definition means that there is an ultimate standard of right and wrong. There has to be a perfect moral compass for you to know the difference between right and wrong, and that perfect moral compass is the thrice holy God. Besides that, you know that there's a God because the Bible says he has put eternity in your heart. There's an aching in your heart, an emptiness in your heart that needs to be filled by God. And then on top of all of that, if you're here 
whether it's even for the first time or maybe you've been in churches your whole life or been to a funeral service where the gospel was preached or something like that, you're rejecting the direct preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is saying you're a sinner who needs the righteousness of Christ or you face final judgment on your own. And if you are that person, then you're in trouble because Jesus said If you're not for me, you're what? You're against me. There's no fence sitting. There's no neutrality. There's no waiting. There's no other alternative. There's nothing better coming down the pike. What could be better than the grace of God in Jesus Christ anyway? You know, go ahead. I I shouldn't tell you to do this because you might not have time, but check out the other religions in the world. They're all gross, they're terrible. The things that they want you to do, the standards they want you to live up to, and it's all your own works which you know can't save you already. And then Jesus comes along and he says, how about this, I'll just take your place. I'll just die. You should die, but I'll die for you because I love you. And then I'll raise from the dead and, 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 and I'll come back and I'll set up the kingdom that was once rejected. In the meantime, you can be more than conquerors through Christ who loved you. Yes, the world is a war zone, but I'm in charge. And, and though bad things happen, one of these days I'm coming back and I'll put an end to all that. And so, listen, I, I'm pleading with you, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are blaspheming and will blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That is the unpardonable sin. And so come to Christ this morning if you're here. And don't wait another day. Let's pray together.